Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm Shane Rosenthal, and my guest for this program is T. David Gordon, who is the author of numerous helpful books, including Why Johnny Can't Preach and Promise Law Faith. Dr. Gordon recently published a thoughtful article about media and technology in Modern Reformation magazine titled The Material is Not Immaterial, and I'll be discussing the substance of that article on this program. As you know, last year I interviewed close to 100 Christians at a variety of different events, and the overwhelming majority of those I spoke with seemed to define faith as a blind subjective leap. But of course, if faith is blind, the obvious question is why leap toward Jesus as opposed to all the other possible faith options? When I asked this, most of those I interviewed responded by saying that it's a gut thing, something they simply know is true in their hearts, something they've personally experienced or feel is true deep down inside. Of course, that's also the answer that I've received from Mormons, Muslims, and people from a wide variety of faith backgrounds. So the first question I asked Dr. Gordon was why he thinks so many people from across the broad spectrum of religious belief tend to gravitate towards their own subjective experiences and feelings. Well, I suppose if the the nature of sin is not perversion but inversion. See, I argue from Romans 1, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's Mm -hmm. blessed forever. Sin is not really a perversion, a turning aside. It's an inversion of turning upside down. And so what happens then is Gordon ought to follow God, but instead Gordon follows Gordon. But further, Gordon trusts the least reliable aspects of Gordon, which is not his five senses and his mind, and their ability to apprehend what is outside of Gordon. But Gordon's sin goes so far as to invert it and go to the worst parts of Gordon, the most irrational dimensions of Gordon. In fact, if you think of Jeremiah's lament, the heart is deceitful above all things, and who can understand it? So of all the human faculties we have, the one that we should least have confidence in is the heart, the Mm -hmm. gut, right? 
It's the least reliable. It's the seat of bad affection. We desire too much food, drink, sex, and so forth. Uh, the one thing we are not to trust is our instincts and gut and those sorts of things. Hmm. And so the notion that we just fly by the gut is just probably the worst possible of all notions. So I think it's just if we're created to be outward, to love neighbor and God, sin causes us to love inward, the God of the inner light. Mm. Inside of almost every decent person is an indecent mystic who wants to have his own God speaking to him alone internally and leaving the rest of the objective world out of it. So you see this desire to worship the self and especially the internal and subjective self is basically the essence of our sinfulness. Okay, so you recently wrote an article that I'd like to talk to you about uh, in Modern Reformation magazine titled, The Material is Not Immaterial. And in this thoughtful piece, you discuss something we've talked about over the last decade or more in various conversations related to this idea that tools not only do things for us, but also they do things to us. Uh, in your article, you give the example of a shovel, which of course helps us to dig holes more efficiently, but also ends up giving us calluses. Another example that comes to my mind is the fact that we might use electronic media, such as television or the internet, for purposes of entertainment and amusement. Clearly, the media does something for us. It might help us to relax at the end of a long day, but it's also doing something to us, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. When a material being rubs up against other material realities, there will necessarily be some effect of some nature or another. And to, to be otherwise is to think that we're heads on a stick. But since we have a material nature, everything that we bump into affects us. So, for instance, one of the things that bumps into us is sound, right? We have ears and little children speak the language in which they are reared because they hear it so often. Mm -hmm. uh, Doug Stewart has indicated uh, that people who read to their children in utero, their children learn to speak faster. Hmm. So even surrounded by amniotic fluid their ears adjusted to the sounds of their native language even before they left the womb. And, and that's why, for instance, a 10-year-old boy in Paris today is speaking French. A 10-year-old boy in Pittsburgh is speaking something approximating English. And uh, neither of them chose their language. The point is hearing those sounds affects our language acquisition. It's one of the profoundest aspects of our humanity is our native language. We absorb it. And we, we absorb all that we see, all that we hear, all that we experience shapes us in terms of what we will be able to perceive tomorrow. So what Gordon perceives today through the five senses or through the two properties of the mind will influence what Gordon is able to perceive tomorrow. That's just the way it works. In his classic work, How to Read a Book, Mortimer Adler observed that uh, passive reading, which is almost always with the eyes in motion but with the mind not engaged, is not reading at all. That kind of reading is on a level with watching television for the sake of relaxation or just to fill some empty time, letting the images that pass across the screen flip before one's eyes. Then he says this, The habit of watching television in this way, endemic among the young who spend hours before the screen in a state of intellectual somnolence, turns them into passive readers who flip the pages of a book with little or no attention to the meaning of the words on the page. 
Now, you've, as I recall, impersonated a college professor for many years at Grove City College. So I'd like to ask you this, like, did you by any chance notice a change over the years in your students' ability to pay attention in class or to process the reading assignments, particularly after laptops, smartphones, and social media arrived on the scene? Yeah, it happened in a couple phases. Um, Obviously, the turn of the millennia into the digital world was significant. But then most of my colleagues that I would bump into in the faculty lounge getting coffee or something, most of us also noticed something around 2010 to 2012, because you see, that's when the iPhone came out. So the smartphone is itself as consequential as the digital world more generally considered, Mm -hmm. because the laptop you could leave on your desk, the desktop computer you had to leave on your desk. But now the smartphone goes with people everywhere. So after that, all of my colleagues were noticing that the students, their language skills, their ability to process language and to read uh, had been profoundly shaped uh, by the smartphone. It puts them in in a juvenile world, first of all, because even when they're physically around their parents, they're tweeting and texting and instanting their friends who are juveniles. And so they're just not exposed to adult English. And so they don't have vocabulary skills. They have real difficulty with uh, multi-clause sentences, especially we, we notice that. And it's, it's because due to no fault of their own, they've been shaped differently. Uh, if you can recall, you know, when you and I were young, if my friends were away on vacation in the summer and there was no one to play ball with, I might have been lying in a hammock in the backyard and reading uh, The Hardy Boys. Now, the Hardy Boys are not the brothers Karamazov. It's not great literature, but there's not an ungrammatical sentence in the book, and there's no misspelled words. The punctuation is correct. And so, unintentionally, that medium was shaping my ability to apprehend written English. And so, the difference between sitting in the hammock and reading that versus watching a YouTube video or something like that is profound in terms of how it shapes us. Or texting back and forth with um, friends in kind of a pidgin English. (laughs) Yeah, the the virtue, if you want to put it that way, the virtue of the digital world is immediacy, that everything happens so quickly. You can respond to someone very rapidly, uh, make a clever comment or so forth. But of course, that means it's comparatively thoughtless. Because thoughtfulness requires time, the kind of time that Adler was talking about. You know, uh, the first book that I personally ever bought a second copy of, that was the first one I bought a second copy of, How to Read a Book, because I had worn the other one out. And since reading it, I always have a pencil in my hand when I'm reading because I have my own marginalia, all of my own shortcuts for my notes. I always read aggressively, and I learned it from Adler. But the digital world would not reward you for being attentive. And so it's, it tends to convey and cultivate inattentiveness and a lack of critical thinking because there's no time to be attentive or to exercise critical thought. For instance, we all know that watching a film would be different than going into the Museum of Modern Art and pausing for a while as we look at a Cezanne. Some paintings that you've seen for the first time in a museum stop you in your tracks, as it were. This this happened to me with Cezanne in the Philadelphia Museum of Art when I was a student at Westminster. And I remember stopping and looking at this painting, didn't know who painted it, didn't know anything about it. And I sat there taking it in for eight or 10 minutes and trying to ask myself, why am I so captivated by this? Huh. 
But a painting permits you to absorb it. A moving picture doesn't. By its very definition, you cannot meditate on something that's moving. Right. Uh, moving picture, whether on television, internet, or on a big screen, moves. It prohibits contemplation. Yeah, Oz Guinness said something to that effect in one of his books where he said, television is biased against memory and history with its very pace and style. The ceaseless, breathless flow of the now renders viewers incapable of remembering. Yeah. And if you think about the amount of hours that, you know, young people today spend in front of a screen, I mean, I think most estimates are around 10. Uh, I mean, people like Maggie Jackson have argued that this is the... Uh, what is her language? Uh, she talks about the coming dark age. The coming dark age. Yeah, she calls it because remember the, the the medieval world was called the dark age because they lost memory of the past. Yeah. Television is impatient with abstraction. It has impatience with thought. And Oz is right. It's impatient with history. A book, for instance, when you have a book and you read something important in it, you know, you put your finger in there mm -hmm. and you set the book lap and you ponder. Putting a movie on pause is not the same reality. Right. That environment, technically, you could. No one does. We don't pause movies when we're watching them unless we use the men's room or we're getting up for a glass of tea or something like that. But we don't pause them to ponder. Now, after you've seen a film, if you're clever and you have three clever friends, you can talk about the film and possibly that, that conversation could generate thoughtfulness. But you can't be thoughtful about the film while you're watching it. Yeah. Well, one of the things you discuss in your recent article is the way that all human media have particular biases inherent in their form that permit us to extend ourselves either in space or in time. What do you mean by that? Well, the, the, this observation was first made, I think, by Harold Ennis in the late 1940s or early 50s, that all media are biased towards one aspect of reality or the other. They either extend through time or they extend through space. So, for instance, a, a, a gravestone where we remember a loved one who's passed, uh, it does not extend through space. You don't want to pick one up and lug it around with you. But it does extend through time, and we can walk through old cemeteries from time to time and see memorials of people who passed in the 17th or 18th or 19th century. And so the gravestone is biased towards time. The electronic media are biased towards space. The first one, the telegraph, for instance, allowed a person in Boston to telegraph a person in Dallas in almost real time. Now, you had to go down to a Western Union office and you had to pay per character. So it was very expensive. So it was never a popular medium. But it did extend and biased towards space. It, it conquered space the way the tombstone conquers time. And so a bound book, you know, I think over here I've got some bound books lying around. And uh, I was consulting uh, some aspect of uh, Plato's Apology of Socrates recently. I forget why I was doing it again, but I was. And so here's a book that you know, with Greek on one side and English on the other gets me in touch with a person who was writing 25 centuries ago. And so books permit us to extend our conversation across time into the past several thousand years. They're biased towards time. So Ennis was right. McLuhan was right. All media are biased in the sense that they are more efficient or efficacious or effective either to transcend time or to transcend space. So as you reflect in your article about uh, space-biased media in particular, you point out that one of the downsides of having the world at your fingertips 
is that if we're not careful, this kind of media can actually end up cultivating a contempt for place, enabling us to evade and avoid those who are present while attending those who are absent. I think they even invented a new word to describe this. You know, if you Google the word smombies, you'll find links to all kinds of articles related to smartphones and pedestrian safety. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yes, the uh, the human made in God's image is such a remarkable being. Such a, even in our fallen state, we're still in many ways just profoundly remarkable. And so to convey unintended disrespect for a human with a material body is to convey disrespect for the for the zenith of God's created hmm. order. We're the only aspect of his creation which is defined as his likeness or image. And so the, all of the creation testifies to his authorship of the creation, to his creating it. It's all creature. But only the human is his likeness. And previous generations regarded this as very, very significant. <clears throat> when my granddad was in his last year, when he was 89, he had become a little bit less sturdy on his feet. And so he walked with a cane just to make sure he didn't fall, I suppose. But, you know, if he was seated on a sofa in the living room and an adult woman entered the room, he leaned forward onto his cane and he stood up and he did not sit back into his seat until this woman had been seated. Now, that was a lovely act of respect for an incarnated human being. And his generation did it even when they were old and infirm and had to use a cane to stand up. By contrast, we can be in a room with people and pay no attention to their physical presence. They can come and go. I used to say that one of these days I'll get arrested for indecent exposure because I'm going to be waiting for a flight in the Pittsburgh airport and I'm just going to drop my trousers. You know, I'll probably have some nice boxer shorts with lobsters on them or something like that. But I'm, I'm going to drop my trousers and just see how long it'll take for anyone to even notice that the curious little man with the bow tie has just dropped trowel. Right. <laughs> it, I might get away with it for three or four minutes. Right. And even if I get arrested, it's almost worth paying the fine because wouldn't it be funny if I could stand there trouserless for five minutes and no one even noticed. Right. Well, and that's the idea of the smombie. You know, it's a smartphone zombie. I mean, it seems like it's not just conservative Christians who are becoming aware of the dehumanizing aspect of what these technological devices are doing to us. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, the, the natural revelation of God, the reveal order that he's made, quite often uh, people who do not profess Christian faith are wonderful observers of human nature. Some of our finest authors and cultural observers profess no particular theism, much less Christian theism, but they're great astute students of the human being. And so, yeah, many of these people are uh, wonderful humanists. Now, you and I, were Christian humanists, and they are secular humanists. And so, Ultimately, there are differences, but nonetheless, they are humanists, and, and they do celebrate what is distinctly humane, and they often recognize our comparative inhumanity by the behaviors that we do. You interact in your article with the ideas of Marshall McLuhan, who you mentioned earlier, and he suggested that the use of electronic media to bypass all former spatial restrictions was a kind of discarnate presence. What do you think McLuhan meant by that? Yeah, McLuhan, there's no question about it. That was an intentionally Christological statement. As a Christian, I think he, he deliberately employed the term disincarnate rather than disembodied. You right. see, a secular person might have said disembodied, but he chose the more expressly Christological term from the creeds and called it discarnate. 
So I think it was a term of reproach. I think as McLuhan used it, he believed that to convey disrespect for the material human is also to convey disrespect for the incarnation when Christ took on our bodily existence, took on our flesh, and suffered in that flesh for sinners. So I think McLuhan used the term disincarnate quite intentionally as a disapproving term. Yeah, it's interesting when you contrast discarnate with the incarnation. If we as Christians value the incarnation of Jesus, we're valuing his presence bodily among us. He pitched his tent and dwelt among us. That's right. And if that's something we value, then we should think about how important it is for us to live in this embodied existence, this incarnate existence, pitching our tent and living among others. Yes, that's right. And so McLuhan would probably have applauded my grandfather who, when he was 89 years old, leaned onto his cane and stood up when a woman entered the room. Right. It was the way that my grandfather conveyed respect for an incarnate human being. And McLuhan would have probably said, well done, Pop. He would have probably appreciated his doing that because, yeah, if we do not appreciate materiality per se, then we cannot appreciate Christ's materiality. And of course, as all of our theologians teach us, once he took on our flesh, he retains that eternally. That's why we can sing rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. There is a sense in which he will still bear our nature perfectly wedded to his divine nature in the life to come. So it's a remarkable, remarkable reality and not one that we should take lightly. You also quote McLuhan as saying that uh, discarnate man has no relation to natural law. His impulse is toward anarchy and lawlessness. Why do you think he said that? I think he b believes that what happens is the essence of the original temptation is to be like God. That's what the serpent said. Then you will be like God. Now, the human was already more like God than anything else in all of creation. The only part of creation that was the image of God, the likeness of God. And yet the original temptation is to transcend our creaturely limitations. Now, in the original state, apart from sin, and in the glorified state, when our sin is dealt with, there will be nothing wrong with being material creatures. It's not wrong to be a creature and have bare physical flesh. It was originally good to be so. And you see, Eve was tempted to escape creaturely existence, to be like God, to be unbounded by materiality. And so, almost all of our sin has that aspect to it, the desire to transcend what was originally part of God's good creation. So the temptation of media is always not merely to extend our humanity, but to transcend our humanity. To speak on the phone or the internet with a friend some states away is merely to extend our humanity, but to transcend our humanity is the gravest of all. So if you think of the, the horrible situation with our transgendered friends today, uh, what an awful existence that must be, almost a tortured existence. We feel so badly for them, so sympathetic to their plight. And yet, what could be a greater effort to transcend our fundamental nature than for a man to refuse to acknowledge that he is biologically male? It's an attempt not to be a creature embedded in space and time with a certain material reality that is real. Yeah. And so it participates in that fundamental Adamic resistance to creation itself. And that's why McLuhan would have called it unnatural 
and anarchic, you see, because it's it's to be not ruled, not even to be ruled by the nature God has given us, that your nature is itself a limitation when it's not a limitation for the hawk to fly. It's not a limitation for the dolphin to swim. This is their nature. And to do what our nature prescribes to be what we do is not limiting, it's exhilarating. But what we want is to transcend that so that we can know as God knows. That's right. We want omniscience. We want omnipresence. Right. We want to be God. It's not enough to be the image of God. We want to be God. You know, not long ago, I saw a clip from a 1995 PBS interview with Neil Postman, who happened to be a student of Marshall McLuhan. And in this interview, Postman was asked to comment on this newfangled thing called the Internet. (laughs) And he responded by saying this. People say with the internet, you are always interacting with another person. And when you're in cyberspace, I suppose you can be anyone you want. And uh, I think uh, it's worth talking about because this is a new idea and uh, something very different from face-to-face co-presence with another human being. Do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing, or you haven't decided? Well, no, I, I've uh, mostly decided that new technology is uh, a kind of Faustian bargain. It always gives us something important, but it also takes away something that's important. For instance, when I hear people talk about um, the uh, information superhighway, it will become possible to shop at home and bank at home, get entertainment at home and so on. I often wonder if this doesn't signify the end of any uh, meaningful community life. Uh, I mean, when two human beings get together and they're co-present, there is built into it a certain responsibility we have for each other. And when people are co-present in family relationships and other relationships, that responsibility is there. You can't just turn off a person. On the internet, you can. And I wonder if this doesn't diminish that built-in human sense of responsibility we have for each other. What do you think about those comments? Yeah, it's great stuff, isn't it? Roughly at that time, mid-90s, as I recall, there was a wonderful cartoon in The New Yorker, and... uh, there are two dogs in the cartoon, one seated at a desk, and he's got his computer in front of him. And he says to the other dog, on the Internet, no one knows you're a dog. <laughs> and so he was making the same point, I suppose, that uh, that uh, Postman was making in that interview. The, the co-presence is part of our given and our material nature that's actually a good thing. Mm. And one of the reasons that depression has continued to rise, even before COVID, it is at least correlated with the use of the internet, I think is because our nature actually longs for real human communion. Mm. And at some deep level existentially, we know that the thousands of friends we have on Facebook are not friends. I reread Cicero last summer on companionship. And uh, he said, it's a very unusual person uh, who has more than two friends. And one is blessed if you have one. And yet, you know, you know, these so-called influencers, young women who don't wear many clothes, uh, they claim to have, you know, a million friends and these kinds of things and followers and so forth. And bless their hearts, they probably don't have a single friend. Um, 
when I go back to New Hampshire in late May each year to hike with old friends, you know, we're all either 70 or right at it. Um, and we don't hike as fast as we used to, but we do enjoy each other's physical presence. And it wouldn't be enough each year to just have a Zoom meeting with them. We go back, we dine at our favorite restaurants, we go to our favorite cigar bar there, we hike the trails that we're still able to hike at our age, a little bit less ambitious than the ones we used to hike. But all of that materiality is just very good stuff. Do you think this new technology gave a kind of new plausibility to the things that are ubiquitous today, such as the thing you just mentioned with, you know, transgender kind of categories? In those early days of the internet, you know, it was a new thing. You could kind of have whatever internet presence you wanted. But now we've actually morphed into identifying that way in real life. What do you think? Is that part of this, that there's a new plausibility to identifying whatever you wanted to be? Yeah, I think there is. You know, Professor uh, Peter Berger died just a few years ago, I think 2018 maybe. But in all of his stuff on the sociology of knowledge, he talked about plausibility structures. Uh, his basic thesis was Gordon cannot believe that X is until Gordon first believes that X might be. Mm -hmm. Right. You have to first believe something's plausible before you embrace it as actual. And so what the cyber world does is it gives plausibility to the idea that our material corporeal nature is perhaps something we could shock off like the husk off of the corn cob, you know, right. Um, that would have been implausible, I think, in other generations. And it is more plausible now uh, to regard ourselves as heads on a stick and to pay no attention to the stick. We're just heads on a stick. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it does render that discarnate nature to be plausible. I mean, just think about the languages of the world. We have mother, father, brother, sister, grandmother, grandpa, uncle, aunt. You know, people talk today about preferred pronouns, but what do you do with all those? <laughs> There's only two sets. <laughs> right. There's nothing in between. And every language has that bifurcation in terms of the way we understand who people are. That's right. The bifurcated nature of male and female is one of the profoundest aspects of the image of God. If you think of the apposition there in Genesis 1... In the image of God, he made them male and female, he made them and he blessed them. And so it's a remarkable statement because God is not material and he does not have biological sexuality the way the human does. And yet by apposition, he refers to us as the image of God and male and female. And I think it's because being the author of life, we are the authors of life with a small a, author with a small a. And we best emulate God when we bring new life into the world. Mm. That's where we are most profoundly like God. And so the apposition, I think, is, is very apt there. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He made them and he blessed them. It's a remarkable statement. And so whether it's transgenderism or what was once called unisexuality, all of these are humanity in full revolt, full revolt against our most basic sense of who we are. I think I'm going to start putting it in my email address that, you know, T. David Gordon, but I identify as Shaquille O'Neal. You know, I like to think of myself as a large, talented black man, right? And everyone else will say, no, no, you're a short, untalented white man, right? You can't identify as Shaq. You just can't do that. And it would be preposterous to do so, wouldn't it? And so sometimes we have to push error to its extreme to see it. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing this. It, it took the, the issue of men competing in women's athletics 
to get the public's attention at large to this because it was just 15 years ago or so that Title IX was passed. Right. And and all the feminists were arguing for it, that female athletes in the NCAA would get the same kind of funding as male athletes, these kinds of things. They finally got it, which seems perfectly equitable to me. I don't know why they should be less regarded than male athletes. And so once they finally won this, now they're losing it because they're going to have to spend the rest of their professional careers competing with men. Yeah. Irony of ironies. All right. So Postman talked about the idea of uh, being anything you want to be, but he also talked about the new plausibility of being able to turn people off in that electronic media. That idea of turning a person off sounds to me like Postman was, in a way, presciently describing what would later become cancel culture. What do you think? Yeah. there's When you do it face-to-face, -face, the person knows it. If you're dining with someone in a restaurant, and the person does something offensive, and you get up and leave the table, everyone knows that you took offense. Yeah, that's a big deal. And and so turning a person off face-to-face, -face, you can't hide from it. You can't do it in a cowardly way. You're really aware of it, that you your disagreement was so strong that you couldn't remain in the presence of such a person. Which becomes really awkward at Thanksgiving, you know, when when it's loved ones, you know, and Uncle Bob is yes. spouting off, you know, his strange view. And what do you do? Do you just walk away from the Thanksgiving table? I mean, that becomes really difficult and awkward, right? Correct. But I think that that's the way it should be. That is to say, normally as a matter of courtesy, we try to be as cordial as we can to other people made in God's image. Right. But there are certain moments when the, there's such a fundamental difference on very important realities that we just say, I cannot in good conscience abide that. And we walk away. Now, but what if it was like we had the technology that allowed us as a collective family to mute Uncle Bob, you know, so nobody could hear what he had to say. I mean, think about right. that. I mean, that kind of takes it to another level, oh, yeah. but that's what we have the ability to do in the cyber world. Yeah. In fact, AI will probably be used for that purpose, won't it? They will use voice recognition software and they will immediately, you know, be able to discern who's speaking and you would have the ability in a cyber conversation for the AI just to block the guy out altogether, right? You wouldn't have to mute him. You wouldn't have to do that. AI would right. do it for you. And we can just say, we're going to cancel that person. Well, AI is doing that now, if you think about it. I mean, what I've heard from people in the social media technology world is that they actually have an agenda that they prefer and they dial down conversations that they don't like and elevate things and pump things that they do like so that their algorithms, their AI is directing that more eyeballs and earballs see the stuff that they want to promote and they turn off <laughs> conversations they don't want to promote. Yeah, that's right. And, th and that's something which only the faux world, the discarnate world can do. Mm -hmm. In the discarnate world, for instance, if you hear a horrible sermon, you just switch the channel. Right. You, you look for something else. You Google over to something else that you're interested in. Yeah, it just becomes a matter of the will, right? I mean, it's what Nietzsche said, the triumph of the will. I don't wish to hear this in the electronic world. I just mute it. And then now right. I'm stuck in a world that's I'm only hearing the things I like. Right. Well, folks, my guest has been T. David Gordon. And uh, Dr. Gordon, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today on the Humble Skeptic Podcast. You're welcome, Shane. Great to be with you again.
Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. If you'd like to read further on today's topic, simply head to the show notes where I'll include a link to Dr. Gordon's article, along with a few links to various recommended books related to our conversation. As always, The Humble Skeptic is a listener-supported podcast, so if you're a fan of the show, consider upgrading to a paid subscription via Substack for a little over $5 per month. You can also make a one-time gift of any size using our online tip jar, and you can find both options in the show notes. Another way to help is to write a positive review of the show, preferably via the Apple Podcast app, and to share episodes with friends and family or via social media. Thanks so much, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Thank you.